Hi everyone, it's Anna. It is Monday and we are now in the month of October, October 5th. Uh, that's the day that I am recording this little intro for the podcast that's going to come out tomorrow. I just wanted to come on before the podcast starts to let you guys know how grateful I am for everybody that's listening, to let you know how excited I am for what some of our upcoming changes are. When I started Mighty Littles, I really wanted this to be a place where we could do medical storytelling, a place where parents in the NICU could find hope and inspiration and camaraderie and feel a little bit more comfortable with everything that was happening in the NICU. But there's so much about becoming a mother and transitioning into the role of motherhood and working through bringing a baby home from the NICU that I don't just want to stay inside of the NICU. I also want to do podcasts that help bridge that transition home from the NICU. And so we're changing up the format. I've hinted at this on Instagram and I wanted to let you guys know what was coming up for this month. So tomorrow's podcast is an interview with the mom of a 22-weeker, 23-weeker, kind of 22 to 23 weeks. And she's now six and baby's doing really pretty well. Her podcast, we really summarize the hospital stay in the first five minutes. And then we spend the rest of the podcast talking about what it's like to be in the NICU and things that really helped her get through the NICU. Next week starts our practical parenting segments, followed by some NICU education and book club. So with that, I'm going to get us launched right into the podcast. And I hope you guys are excited, as excited about what is coming up this month as I am. Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Anna Zimmerman, host of the Mighty Littles Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have Lizzie Smith with us. We're going to be talking about her three babies. She actually had three premature infants in the newborn ICU, so she is an expert on preemies and being the mom of preemies. So, Lizzie, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay, well, thanks for having me. My name is Lizzie Smith, and I have um, three children. They are all three preemies. My first one is a 35-weeker. My second one's a 31-weeker. And my third one was a 23-weeker. So um, only two of them were in the NICU, but um, I've had plenty of NICU experience. So why don't we start off by having you kind of summarize your NICU stays. So you know, your first baby was a late preterm baby, but didn't actually end up in the NICU, but still had some late preterm preemie stuff. And then let's talk about your other two NICU stays. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk a lot about my sons because theirs was uneventful. My, my son was actually only in the NICU for nine days being a 31 weeker. They said he'd be three pounds. He ended up almost five pounds, um, at 31 weeks and he had no breathing issues. Um, he had some feeding troubles, but after that he went home and we dealt with reflux. That was pretty much it. Um, It was my daughter that really like threw us into the chaos of the NICU because at 22 weeks and two days, you know, I had been taking these hormone shots that were supposed to help me, but they only had a small chance of helping me. So I was taking these hormone shots and we decided because they were affecting my mood so bad that we were gonna stop taking them once a week. And it was literally the next day, 22 weeks and two days that my water ruptured. 23 weeks, um, I get up to go to the bathroom, and when I go to the bathroom, uh, her cord prolapsed. And I felt her cord, but I also could feel her feet. So she had, like, started coming out already. So I, like, run, jump back in the bed. The doctor comes rushing in. So um, when she was born, only thing I saw was him passing her off, and then I saw his jaw drop. And so they pass her off to the neonatologist, and... My husband is going, be quiet, be quiet, stop crying, I can hear something. And I was like, no, 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 don't do this to me. I can't have hope because it's my only girl. Like, this, I've wanted this since I was a little girl. And so he's like, no, no, I can hear them talking about her. 
And he was right. You could hear them saying her heartbeat, um, her respiratory rate. And there was like a flood of people coming in and taking care of her. So the next day I go to the NICU and I see her and they tell me that she has like the worst lung disease. And that it was a couple days later, they said that she'd probably only live um, or that she had less than 1% chance of survival and 0% chance of a normal life. So she spent 140 days in the NICU and the first 10 days were uneventful. Nothing was, nothing was happening, but then her lungs started deteriorating really bad because her, because of her PDA, it was flooding her lungs. And so they showed me an x-ray of her lungs and her lungs were completely white. I held her hand every day, talked to her. I spent 17, 19 hours a day talking to her. She ended up, um, needing heart surgery when she was nine weeks old and she was two pounds. So she was born at, I should have said she was born one pound, three ounces and 11 inches at her smallest. She was one pound, um, zero ounces. And, um, so she ended up having the heart surgery when she was nine weeks old. So the first time I held her was actually at 36 days old. I didn't, I didn't get to hold her till she was 36 days old. And it was actually my birthday that I got to lift her up in my hands and feel her for the first time. It was my birthday. So my birthday present. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, so, um, we ended up changing doctors because the doctor that had said she wasn't going to make it through surgery wouldn't even try. But one doctor was like, she's going to die. If we don't, if we do, at least there's a chance. So we actually switched doctors to this doctor and he is the one that made the big difference in her life. Uh, he kept her on that VDR ventilator for a long time and said, we are not going to push her. And she was like three months old when they finally took her off of it. And um, she went on conventional. So I finally got to hold her again. But right after that, they noticed that her vision was deteriorating. And she had been having so many retina checks that they were like, okay, it's really bad. And the type of um, retina problems she was having that couldn't do surgery in that hospital so they ended up airlifting her, like an emergency airlifting her to Oakland Children's Hospital, which is two hours away. And so when they um, airlifted her, um, she was still on a ventilator. So I was panicked and I drove down there so I could have my car. When I drove down there, they did the um, treatments of Astin's. So they did those immediately that day. And then the next day they did um, a laser surgery and they did another one the next day. Um, so after that, we spent three weeks in the Oakland Children's Hospital. I went home for one day, one day out of the whole three and a half weeks she was there, because it was Halloween, and I wanted to be with my boys. I come back, and they tell me, um, you can just go hold her. And I said, no, I can't. She needs a, I need a respiratory therapist. I can't lift her myself. And they said, didn't anyone call you? And I said, no. And they're like, she pulled her own tube out last night. She's on a, she's on a cannula. And I was like, what? I, like, I, I was so shocked. So I like run in the room and like throw on the gown and stuff. And I held her in my arms for probably like 15 hours, never put her down. I just held her and rocked her and loved her. I was like, I was kissing her, taking pictures. I mean, that was the first time I got to be with my baby by myself. I'd been through so much with her. We, we lost her so many times. Like she died on us so many times and was brought back. Like this was just a gift. And um, so then we needed to get back. And so when they brought her back, they said, well, she's still going to be here for a while because she's going to have oral aversion from being intubated for so long. Well, she took, took the bottle like that immediately. Not only that, but they did a brain scan and she had had a grade, uh, one level brain, brain bleed and it had recessed on its own. So she had no more brain bleeds, even though she had had all this oxygen pressure. So that was a miracle too. Um, the doctor told me this is a complete miracle. I've never seen a preemie do this before. She, and they thought she looked more like a 22 weeker, even though we thought she was 23. So they were like, this is, this is incredible. So even the neonatologist took pictures with us because he had never had a preemie and he was there for like 36 years and he had never had a micro preemie do as well as she did. And, um, so she took the bottle immediately, drank the whole thing. And they're like, well, she has to come off of uh, the high pressure oxygen. That will take a while. Nope. It took her about a week and she was down on oxygen and they sent us home at, um, 140 days. Uh, they sent us home. So it was five months. She came home on oxygen and, um, she was on oxygen for about the first 
she was five months and she was about a year old when she started to come off of it during the daytime, but she still had really severe central sleep apnea. So she was still wearing oxygen at night. Well, we had been home for a month and she got RSV. She never went on a ventilator. She went up to high flow oxygen. That was it. And then she went home three and a half weeks later. That's basically the gist of it. She's six now. She still has about 14 specialists. Um, you know, in the beginning, we saw doctors about every eight to 10 days. Some days we'd have multiple appointments. And it was terrifying because I wasn't very good with the oxygen. And, you know, dad was the one really good with it. And there was a time where I came home from a doctor's appointment and I, she was running out of oxygen in her tank. And I tried to switch it in the parking lot and I put it on backwards. And you could just see her monitor was going down 98. 89, 85, 78, 71. And he could hear her alarm from the house. He comes like bolting out and he, he saved her. Like he, he put it back on and put it on correctly and saved her life. And my sons did the same thing when she got RSV. They actually were the ones that saved her because I was on the phone with 911. So they were actually the ones who threw on her oxygen or not threw on her nebulizer treatments and turned up her oxygen and held her until my alarm got there. Cause I was like panicking. Um, so yeah, she's six now. She has really big vision issues and you know, her lungs are still really damaged. So she like, since this whole virus, she hasn't left the house since March. Um, but you don't know it by looking at her. She has mild CP. You know, you have no idea by looking at this kid that she's been through a nightmare and she still remembers little pieces. Like she'll ask me little questions. I don't know how she remembers little pieces, but she says things. And I'm like, how in the world did you know that? I never told you that, you know? So anyways, that's basically her, her NICU journey. We still, I mean, we still struggle with all her health issues and um, um, her vision's the biggest thing, you know, at school and stuff. She'll see, they're just noticing that she probably has a learning disability too. Which doesn't surprise me. I I knew all along that she would. Just something told me. She's not going to have a brain bleed with severe brain damage. She's going to learn disability. Because of all the stuff she had been through and how early she was. So I, I'm prepared for it already. Yeah. So, so it really, <clears throat> when I'm listening to your story, it reminds me of why I so strongly believe that as doctors, we need to tell parents what the possibilities are, right? Right. So 23 weeks is really early and right. some 23 weekers survive and have devastating complications. Right. Some 23 weekers survive and have mild complications. Right. And some 23 weekers don't survive. But right. it's my job to tell you what the possibilities are and not make any judgments on Right what decisions you choose to make given right. that information because everybody comes at those decision making pro that everybody comes about that decision making for what they want for their babies and for their family right. using their their own set of values and their own set of wants and, and needs and wishes right and you know that the funny thing is that the neonatologist told us um, in the end, he said, did you know that he was telling me she's a dead baby that I could just leave? And I said, no. And he's like, I told him, you don't get to play God. I'm staying on standby because his parents have asked me to stay on standby. Right. So that's why she was saved because he refused to, to let the doctor, the OBGYN tell him what he thought. And he was like, no, 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 no. You don't get to play God, you know? So the thing that got me through all this was, was prayer. Like, I mean, I spent 17, 18 hours a day praying and the pastor would come by all the time. And that was the thing that got me, go kept me going was my instincts. I felt like she could fight through it. If I had felt like she was um, so bad off that she was just in pain and it was worse keeping her alive, I would have let her go. But I could just see the fight in her from day one. Like she, and then they were always wrong. They told me 10 days. Then they told me, oh, well, it's just going to be a little bit longer. They told me she'd be in a wheelchair the rest of her life. They told me she had tubes coming out of every orifice of her body. And like that was supposed to make me not want her. I, I didn't like, we told them, we don't care what she's like. We just want to have our baby girl. This is our only girl. And we, I mean, this is our last baby because we wanted a girl. So we got lucky that it was. 
And so for him to tell me every day that she wasn't worth it, she'd be a burden. It was just when I got to the NICU, I was like, you know what? They told me all this stuff and they were wrong. So when I'm in the NICU, I'm not going to listen to everything they say. And it was the nurses that got me through it because they're like your guardians. They stand up for you. They, you know, my, her primaries actually heard me crying and screaming at the doctor, telling him, what do you want me to do? Just let her die. Like, what do you want me to do with, I, I want my baby to live. I want her to, I want her to try. And so then the primary nurses were actually came to me and took her on and they were, they were amazing the entire time. They were the ones that caught everything like super early and would go to the doctor and be like, this baby needs this, not this, not that, not this. Baby needs this, and mom wants this. Yeah, primary so nursing is so important in the NICU oh, yeah. because they they get to know those babies so well. And right. parents also get to know their babies really well, particularly when parents are in the NICU for so long. Right. And so those those opinions about the baby and those observations about the baby are invaluable to us as the neonatologist because they pick up on really subtle things because yep. they're with the baby so often. And parents pick up on those things right and nurses have the NICU experience to be able to kind of stand behind the parents and say yeah actually this baby is more lethargic and I've taken care of this baby for the last three weeks this is really very different and it's right. only if you actually are with the baby every you know every week like right. if you're there for three days a week or four days a week or whatever your full-time job is right if you're there and you have this baby every single time you get to know that baby right and you can pick up on those subtle changes they've done right. studies that show that primary when units utilize primary nursing babies do better they go home yeah. sooner they eat sooner yes. you have less infectious workups you have earlier extubations there's all sorts of benefits to primary nursing yeah they were amazing and that was actually one of my pieces of advice was primary nursing and you know um, getting in tune with your baby is so important because you learn all those little subtle changes like I realized one day laying my head next door that she had the smallest hole in her ventilator tubing and they're like, oh, that wouldn't affect her. But they changed it out anyways, and she went right back to 100%. You know, I, I put her on my chest as often as I could. Kangaroo care. Oh, my gosh. Kangaroo care, kangaroo care. As much as I could. Um, and it was almost every day that she was on the conventional ventilator. I'd be like, can I hold her? Can I hold her? Can I hold her? And not only would that help with pumping, but it would help me feel her. And she would, you know, get my smell. You'd see her oxygen saturations go up really high instead of her bouncing around between the 80s and 90s. So I knew that that was benefiting her as well. But the other thing that I did was um, I took the NICU actually gave me this little like rag. It has like a little rag head. Um, head. It kind of looks like this, but it's just a rag that they make a little knot at the top. Yeah, like hat. a lovey. Right. And so what I would do, I'd stick it in my shirt and in my bra every day stretch it across here so that the milk would go on it and then I would lay it next to her head because that way when she was ready to breastfeeding to breastfeed if she got to then she would know the milk and so she never had donor milk ever in her life which is amazing because 23 weeks your body's not ready to pump your body's not ready to breastfeed but I was like uh-uh I'm doing this and I took fenugreek I did cabbage leaves I did whatever I could and um I ended up with 400 bottles of store frozen milk they told me to take it home from the NICU nice. they're like way too much here you gotta take some home but yeah so this thing was uh, it made me feel like I was doing something for her and helping her by doing this you know anything they said I could do diapering changing weighing changing leads um changing her bedding bringing in my own little blankets for her bedding anything they said I could do I was doing it in fact I was driving back to the NICU, I'd be there for hours, pick up my kids from school, take them home, their dad would get home from work, and we'd all go see the baby until the nighttime, and then we would all go back home. Then I'd go back and wait until morning weigh-ins. Well, they found out that I was coming back and forth just to weigh her, and so they switched her weigh-ins for me so that I didn't have to go back and forth. So it's like the primary nurses just do so much for you. They call you when um, they're worried about things, you know, they, they talk to you. They spent hours talking to me and trying to just calm me and make me feel better about it. And just tell them, you know, like the, 
how many preemies have made it, how many preemies have had troubles, and they show me pictures of preemies that have made it. And so that was a huge support, and that's what you need. You have to have some kind of support because it's it's an emotional roller coaster. One minute you're up, you're like, yes, they're doing great. The next minute you're down, you're like, oh my god, but yesterday they were so good. And the next minute you're up, and it's it's just a big roller coaster of emotions the whole time. So without support, you know, it's like you're who do you talk to? And a lot of those preemie groups that I'm in, I mean, those are hugely beneficial too because there's others that can relate and they can say, well, we went through this and we did this, and look at you know what I mean, look how the well we're doing or. You're going to be facing these challenges, but it's worth it. And it really is. I mean, it's, it's 100% worth it. The heart, I think the hardest part though was coming, is coming home from the NICU is probably the hardest part. So while you were in the NICU, you know, you mentioned the primary nurses, the Facebook groups, your family. Mm-hmm. What do you think was your biggest support uh, of those? Or, or were they all kind of together led to I'd- being supported enough? I definitely say her dad was a supportive one because when I was upset and crying, he would just hold me. Like the first night we went home, I cried even through my sleep. I only slept for a few hours, but even through my sleep, I was crying and I wake up bawling and he would just hold me and tell me, it's okay. It's okay. I'm here. And like he held my hand all the time and he remained calm when I couldn't, when I was losing it, when I thought I was going to pass out by watching the resuscitator, he was the one holding my hand and supporting me. And something else we did together actually was we wrote journals every day we would write in her journal. So I filled two of these things and it was a huge um, support for me to be able to go back and look at it and say like, Oh, she, she did this already. So we should only want, how long ago did this happen? Or how long ago did she poop? And you know, things like that. Um, so so were, are those just blank journals or did, are they just, um, because I know they make some preemie specific journals. Are these just like no, unlined? They're just blank journals that the NICU actually started for me. Oh, and you've and got so, pictures in there too. Right. So child life, you know what child life is? Uh-huh. Okay. So child life, I had a, a representative for me and the child life would do stuff like they'd say like, hi mom, look at, look at me today. And they put footprints in here and they dress her up for Halloween and for like Thanksgiving, they did a little footprints and stuff. So, I mean, the support's really a combination of, of all of that. All of them. My family, my mom was really supportive. She was there at the NICU when I couldn't be there. She'd hold my daughter's hand when I couldn't. Um, she encouraged me. And then um, dad's mom, too, was there like during surgery and stuff. So I had a really good support system. And I think that's, you know, a big part of how I got through it. Yeah. Because there were times where I felt like I was losing my mind. Well, it is. It's really, really hard. The NICU is is. not a place like any other place. It's just kind of its own little world. And it's right. I I always say I wouldn't wish a NICU stay on my worst enemy. It's just even if your baby isn't 22 weeks, even if your baby is 34 weeks um, or a term baby that's only there to transition, just had a little bit of trouble, needed oxygen for a few hours, got some labs. It still is a really difficult place to be. That's funny because my, you know, my 31 weeker, he was only in there for nine days and dad and I were like, we're okay if she's early. We just don't want her to be so early that she has to go in the NICU. That was the night before she was born or the night before my water broke. And night before my water broke, we talked about that and said, like, we just don't want her to be super early. And then she came super early. But, you know, it was crazy because they said for sure she wasn't going to make it. And I hit 23 weeks and she was like she was there, she was alive. So for them to tell me every day that she, you know, she wasn't going to make it, it's like it's a huge miracle that she's here. Yeah, I mean, well, and I think that's kind of for you know neonatologists that are listening. I think that gives us some information about how we should be talking to parents. You know, right. I go back to it's our job to provide people with the information to make informed decisions, mm-hmm. and the reality is that we don't know exactly how any individual baby will do we know that the earlier you are the bigger the risks are the more likely it is that you have some catastrophic event or um the that the outcomes aren't as good or that you don't get to take your baby home because they just can't survive but for any individual baby 
we don't really know what that is. And so we yeah. need to be careful when we're talking to parents about saying, I know your baby can't survive. I don't actually right. know that. I know that exactly. the odds are really, really, really stacked against you. And we need to be prepared that things might not go our way. Right. But but yeah. if we are always saying, your baby's not going to make it, this isn't going to happen, then people lose trust in us. Right. Because we're too confident in our negatives. And we need we to just, be aware of what we know and what we don't know. Which is why we switched neonatologists. It was because that one neonatologist was literally stopping me in the hallway before I'd come into the NICU even see my baby and say... You know, the baby isn't doing well today. My studies show that the baby isn't going to last any longer than 24 hours. And when I said, well, what about heart surgery? Like, you said that heart surgery might be able to help her. And, you, and the thing he came back with, with, well, my studies show that these babies don't do any better with a heart surgery. And she'll never make it through it anyways. So this is why we changed neonatologists. And look what happened. She had the heart surgery. And that's what saved her life. And he wasn't going to do it. And so the other neonatologist stepped in and when he was gone and said, the other one was gone and said, no, we're doing this surgery today because we don't do it. She's going to die. If we do it, we have 50, 50 chance here. So him telling me every day and stopping me in the hallways, it was just so disrespectful. One of the nurses was like, you know, I, every time I see you and he's talked to you, you are upset and it's, and it's causing traumatic experiences for you. Change the doctor don't keep going with him so I went to the nurse manager and she wanted us to work it out with him and I said absolutely not no we are changing doctors and so when the doctors give you all that negative hope too or not negative hope but negativity it causes you to start feeling negativity and feel like well maybe my baby can't fight but really it's up to you it's up to your mommy gut instinct and I think I learned a lot of that in the NICU that you use your mommy gut instinct you don't rely on what the doctors say because your gut, if you're really in tune with your baby and you have really focused on learning your baby's signals and colors and things like that, um, your mommy gut instinct picks up all those things. And so when something happens, you can feel whether or not they're, they're going to make it or not. A doctor can only guess, whereas you, your mom, like your heart can get in tune with your own child's heart. And that will give you the instinct of whether or not you, what you believe in. And she, um, you know, it was hard to have belief because there was so much negativity, but I, I just kept telling myself every day, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray. And the pastor would tell me, you know, it's not up to them. It's up to God and God will decide what's next in her life. And she's here. So obviously there's a plan for her and I'm not really super religious and I wasn't religious like super then and still not, but having that faith in my faith, um, it really, it, I mean, it really helps. And the pastor was absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, the fact that we named her Faith before we knew she was alive, it, it, it meant something. And, you know, when you get in tune with your baby, too, um, it's not only beneficial in the NICU, but it's beneficial when you come home. Because there are times, like, when I put my daughter in the tub, you can't have the um, monitor on her and stuff. So you, you learn those subtle color changes. You learn those subtle cries. You learn those subtle movements. So it's not only beneficial for you in the NICU and the baby, but it's so beneficial when you come home, especially if you come home on oxygen because um, it can be tricky. The oxygen thing can be tricky at home. Parents step up and they become right. the parents that their baby needs. And mm -hmm. so I have a lot of parents that are really, really afraid of G-tubes. And, yes. um, and then after the fact, they're like, Oh, yeah. this is no big deal. Kind of exactly. like going home on oxygen, right? right? So it seems like a huge deal. And there are some little tricky parts to it. And you do have to adjust what you do. But eventually, I mean, she was right. on oxygen exactly. for multiple years. And, yep. and you got good at it. And it became just part of what you did as a parent. You exactly. just kind of step up and do what your child needs. I knew exactly like how much she, how many tanks to bring. I could change her oxygen tank within like 20 seconds. I knew to bring cords. Like, it took time, but eventually it was second nature. Yeah. I mean, I can still do it within a drop of a hat. My boys can do it. I taught my children how to do it just in case something were to happen. I, I wanted them to be able to know what to do in an emergency, too. So everybody in the family was prepared. With like When she uh, when I woke up to her as a purple-gray toddler, unresponsive, when she was two, we all knew what to do because we had practiced it. 
And like, it just becomes, it just becomes second nature and you just do it because that's what your child needs. It doesn't become a hassle. It doesn't become, uh, no, it just becomes my baby needs this just like a diaper change. I'm going to do it because your child needs you and there's nobody else to take, you know, there's nobody else to take your spot. That's your job as a parent to make sure that you're doing your best. It's, it's hard when you come home because you don't have all that help immediately right there. Yeah. But, um, but you're at so many doctor's appointments. So, so many people are checking up on her constantly. And then, you know, you have people that are like, you can reach out to me anytime, any day, you know, like her pulmonary nurse practitioner and I are very close from our pulmonary clinic. I text her all the time, like on a weekend she'll, I'm like, I think she has an ear infection. I can, I know the signs. And sure enough, like she'll send over a prescription that day and sure enough, she had an ear infection. So we've struggled a lot with her hearing and her vision since we've come home. So we've been to many, 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 many appointments. We still do. Even at six years old, we still do. And, you know, at, at schools where they're really starting to notice it. And it's funny because in the beginning, you don't notice, you can't notice every little thing that's going to happen. But as they get older, you start to see where it has affected, the prematurity has started to affect them. And you think when you come home from the NICU that it's 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 done. You know what I mean? Like, you're okay, I can breathe. No, you can't breathe because now you've got every single issue that's going to be happening. It's all on you. you got to be the one. That's why coming in tune with, getting in tune with your baby is so important. Because when you come home, it's it helps you so much. To make sure that they're okay, that you know they're breathing correctly, and you know how to use their equipment, and and you're gonna have many times where you have to go back to the hospital. It's just the nature of the beast, basically. And um, we experienced this many times. She was in the hospital last year for in May for four days because she has encopresis, so she has a her mild CP causes her not to have any muscle tone in her rectum, so she has no ability to push. So she was still wearing diapers and um, because she was leaking and they were like, you know what? She's going to have to get her system cleaned out. It took four days for them to clean out her intestines. Wow. And it was, it was a nightmare. She was NPO for four days um, and she was very lethargic and it was awful. But ever since then, we haven't had any issues with toilet training, which is we were like scared because we knew she'd be in kindergarten. She couldn't go to kindergarten in diapers. So it was a big feat for her to be able to, to be able to get past this. And the other thing that this year in school, she didn't have a, um, an aid last year. She had an aid and they decided this year that she was doing well enough in the classroom that she didn't need an aid. She has several pieces of like vision equipment and stuff in class, but Anyways, I could go on forever. <laughs> no, it's it's awesome. I think it's really helpful for people to hear not just about the NICU stay, right, but also about what happens afterwards. Because yeah. I think you're right that a lot of people think, oh, once we leave the NICU, we're done. Fine. Everything is fine. Yeah. And for some people, that is the case. But for others, yeah. there's follow-on things that come because of that NICU stay. And yeah. so you just need to be prepared. Right. I would also say, though, that the same is true for big term babies, right? You don't actually know what is going to happen. And for some babies that are born at term, they come home and then there are problems that arise after they come home. And those parents are dealing with the same things. And you just kind of have to take it as it comes and take one step at a time and tackle this problem and move to the next and move to the next. Yeah, because if you think about all the things that could happen or that all things that are going to happen or, you know, you just got to go day by day and each day they grow and they get better. And so each day, not only are you going through each day, not worrying about what's going to happen in the future, but you're, it helps you stay on track of focusing on them instead of being like, oh my gosh, what if this happens? What if this happens? What you can't, you won't know what's going to happen. So you just have to do your best and and make sure that you're doing everything absolutely right that you can. And it's it's not going to be perfect. You're not going to be this perfect parent. You know what I mean? Every parent's going to make mistakes. And like, but you learn, you know, once that happens, you're like, oh, okay. So next time when this happens, I know exactly what to do. Like her ear infections, I know exactly when she's having them now. Um, when she's having vision problems, I know exactly when she's having them now. In the beginning, I, I didn't really know, but the progression of 
all the appointments and learning from each doctor. And that's the other thing I did in the NICU was I learned everything they were doing, every little thing they were giving her, um, how much her ventilator settings. I watched them mess with her ventilator. I watched them say what setting she was on. Like when she went to Oakland children's hospital, they had her on the wrong setting for a ventilator. And I said, uh, uh, I know what setting she's supposed to be on. This is not it. And so they changed it and she was fine. It's like those little, those little things, they seem like they're only beneficial for the NICU, but it's actually beneficial in the long run because it's showing that you're seeing your baby's signs. You're reading your baby, you know, and it just becomes like, um, you don't even do it on purpose. It just becomes part of you. And then, you know, after you come home from the NICU, your whole perspective on parenting changes because now you see like how fragile the little life is that you have and how fragile children are. And I'm a teacher for twos and threes as well. And it gave me a huge respect for children in that, even that age, like it made me a way better teacher. And it actually made me like a less stressed parent because there's much worse things that can be happening, you know? So when we were having those good days, it was a day to be celebrated. Anytime she was having a good day or even in the NICU, it's a day to be celebrated. We would have pound parties in the NICU. So she gained two pounds. Woo! We would have a party. Her oxygen stats would drop because she was mad at us. But, but I mean, every day that she made it was a day to be celebrated. And it, when you get home, it's just like this, this um, knowledge that you have just creates like such a strong parenting ability in you. And it, it leads on to everything else in your life. It, it changes you in so many ways that you couldn't even imagine it would change you. I never thought I could be a better parent. I never thought that I could know so much. I never thought that I could handle something like this. And after handling something like that, it's like the challenges that come your way as parenting, it's like, I'm, you know, I've done that. So I'm, I'm going to handle this just fine, you know? Yeah, it made you more confident. Yeah, definitely. And you have to tell yourself that too, because if you're not confident, then it's like <gasps> eats at you and you're just like so timid and scared all the time. But when you're like, I know how to do this. I know my baby signs. I know that something's wrong. And you go to those appointments and they say, no, 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 she's fine. No, no, no. And you say, uh-uh, no, I want this checked. It helps you become this advocate, you know? And um, I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell them, no, I want this done. And this is what I want. And they go, okay, well, okay, oh, yeah. Like, they didn't want to put tubes in her ears, and I kept fighting. I kept fighting. And so one time I brought her in with an ear infection, and it was like her 12th one in the last year and a half. And they are like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess. Well, I guess she does need tubes. Told you that. You know, now they want it. She still has severe central sleep apnea. So she has several hypopnic episodes and central um, apneic episodes. So she still has, like, her sleep studies. So, uh, they didn't want to take her tonsils out when they did her tubes. And I was like, there's no point in leaving him in. We know she's having obstructive acne as well. Now they wouldn't do it. Now I'm advocating for them to do it. And so now they're saying, well, yeah, it looks like it's a good, it's a good idea. You know? Yeah. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's hard to explain because you just kind of go about doing it. You just, it's just your life. And then you care so much for your child. You don't want anything to happen to them. They've already experienced so much. You just want them, you want them to know that someone's there, you know, even if they're babies, you just want them to feel safe and comfortable because you, your heart feels what they went through. You saw it. So it's hard. It's hard, but it's, it's the greatest thing I've ever been through in my life at the same time. <laughs> I think it's because of her. She's the greatest thing that I've ever accomplished in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So after having her in the NICU, I see that you're wearing your March for Babies uh, yeah. t-shirt. Um, yeah. How do you think? How do you think it changed you in terms of advocating for preemie babies, just in general? Well, like like doing this, like uh, um, I I basically will do anything that can help people really understand um, prematurity and understand the um the life that surrounds it and the scariness of it all so every year we also do the march of dimes walk and um um you know create a little team the last year because she was in the hospital we didn't get to do it then this year because of the virus they didn't do it but all the other years previous we go every year 
And um, it's just another way for me to say, like, you know, I have a preemie. I've been through it. I want to support the research and anything that can help future preemies. It's so crazy to hear all the new things they have in the NICU that they didn't have five and a half or six years ago. And it's like, oh, I wish they had had that. Oh, I wish they had that. But, you know, that comes from research and that comes from studying preemies and learning things. Like the um, doctor in our NICU was actually the one who came up with something called bubble CPAP. Um, And she was on bubble CPAP and it was actually her doctor that had brought it to the NICU and it helped um, create it. So like all those little things are different things that help preemies survive. And now they're saying like they're able to save even 22 weekers. Totally 100% became, made me a huge advocate, even for my other children. It's just, it makes you step up and it makes you have a voice. And um, I, w- I mean, I'll do anything. I talk to parents all the time through private messaging. I created her page. Yeah, tell, called- tell me about her page. So I created her page. I just started it. Um, it's called Believing in Faith. And um, her GoFundMe website is actually attached to it. We're not collecting donations, but it has all her updates through the NICU in it and pictures. Eventually all that, I'm going to load it onto her page. But I want to be able to do like live chats with people and have them ask me questions and be like, I'm scared of this. What can I do and provide support? as much as I can. And, um, this is stuff I never would have done beforehand, you know, and I want to be able to post her updates and kind of like, um, talk about her appointments. And I also want to be able to show parents like tips and tricks for using your oxygen equipment and what, um, ways you can keep the cannula on and, uh, how you can carry it, how you can store it. I want to be able to just spread everything, all my knowledge with other preemie parents because the more I spread the knowledge the more they spread the knowledge the more it helps well and some of that some of that stuff you kind of just had to learn on the fly you know yes with how do I carry it and right how do I secure the oxygen on her face and so people that are new to those experiences can can get ideas and not have to learn it and do as much trial and error as you did because now you're sharing those ideas that's the really the power of the internet and the power of social media yeah yeah, and they didn't. You didn't have all these framing groups. Well, maybe they did, but I didn't know about them when she was in the NICU. And I, I wish I had because I would have been able to talk to people. But um, now that they do, I share her story all the time, and I share updates about her. Like she just graduated from kindergarten, and you know nobody ever thought that would happen. And um, I wanted to show you something actually. Yeah. Uh, she. I don't know. Some hospitals do bees of courage. So these are all her beads, including the ones I'm wearing. Oh my gosh, um, lots of beads. She has over like 1,100 beads in these ones too. Yeah. Um, so you receive a bead, one for, um, it's a, a bead for every medical procedure they've been through. So helicopter flights, ambulance rides, hospital stays, um, intubation days, uh, x-rays. Um, blood transfusions, surgeries, all those things. They um, Child Life keeps track and they collect the beads for you and the NICU and they give it to you. When you're out of the NICU, when you end up in the hospital and like you have therapies, you just ask Child Life, hey, I want to update my daughter's beads. And they're always like, oh, okay. Because I don't think anybody really does it, but me, I'm like, no, I want my beads. I want my daughter's beads. I want to be able to show just how much she's been through and each bead shows you like 1100 beads and it's i mean it's a really kind of in your face visual almost it's just this great visual of yeah this is everything that's happened to her exactly that's why i like it and then i also had uh this isn't the smallest diaper that she wore this is actually like a um probably about a third of the size bigger this was about how small her diaper was as you can see in the palm of my hand it actually uh, went up over her chest. And there's a picture of her actually laying sideways in the diaper and her entire body just fits in this diaper and she's just laying sideways. She used to be held in one hand like this for the respiratory therapist and she'd put her hands back like this and just take a rest. <laughs> like she had personality from the beginning and I could just tell she had the fight in her. And so that's why I just never, I never gave up and I'm still... I still don't give up when they tell me something, you know, this isn't going to happen. I still don't give up. I'm still going to keep going and 
and I'm still going to fight when I think they're wrong. I'm not going to stand for someone to tell me anymore because I've already been through that and they were wrong. Yeah. That's yeah. hard to remember. That's hard to remember when you're the Nikki that the doctors aren't always right, you know, because you want to rely on that so much, especially when you get out of the NICU and you're by yourself doing it all. You want to rely on those doctors. But when you feel like something isn't right, um, you feel like something doesn't make sense or you want more. It's like you can't, you have to be loud and, and be an advocate. It's just, you're, it's just your job, you know? Yeah. I always say that it's, it's my job to tell you where we're at and what we're up against. And it's yeah. the parent's job to believe a hundred percent that their child will get better and that it's going to mm-hmm. be okay. And then in a, a small percentage of babies, there becomes a point at which that just can't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that as physicians, we need to be careful that we're not saying that too often and too much when we actually yeah. don't really know right. when what we're really saying is, I am so worried that things might not go the way we want them to go. I yeah. feel obligated to tell you that we are in a bad spot. Yes. That is very different than saying, this There's is no the hope. time right now that yeah. that you need to hold your baby because we, I'm not going to be able to make this last any longer. Those are two very different things. Oh, yeah. And totally. I think we, we need to be careful as medical professionals that we're saying what we mean. If, right. If we're really worried because we're doing everything we can, but we don't know that this is going to get better... We need to say that. And right. if we're saying, I literally have nothing else to do and your baby is satting in the 50s and is getting bradycardic, meaning the heart rate stop starting to drop, right. and I have nothing left to offer, right. then we need to say that. Because those are those right. are different things. And we need to be careful that we're saying what we mean. Right. Because when you say, when you're saying that, at, when the baby's bradycardic, the heart is dropping, they're at 50% and they're not getting better. It's, that's an obvious sign. It's clear that, you know, and when they had nothing left to offer, it's clear that this baby isn't going to make it. But when your baby is still at that point of still fighting and there's nothing major going on for the doctor to come and say, well, there's no hope, you know, basically saying, well, she's not worth it. You know, it, it's not, it's not worth it to save her. It's, how is it you're, you know, how are you helping me as a parent get through this when you're telling me not to have any hope and we don't really know yet? Right. So, but when they tell you things like, you know, um, she is, she did have a brain bleed and the, the facts, that's what we need. The facts, not your studies and your guesses. I'm not talking about you personally. I'm talking about that's like okay. It's okay. Yeah. I'm talking about like the neonatologist, the studies don't mean anything because every baby is so different, especially at that age. But when you say the facts, then it helps me realize, okay, well, she's going through this and this and this could happen, but we don't really know. We don't really know until that baby starts doing the things on their own. Like they never thought she would poop and she did on the first day. Like they never thought she'd be able to ever get any milk. And she did when she was like three or four days old, she started getting milk. Granted, it was like 0.1 ml or something like that. But it's just, there's a difference between, um, Giving non-hope and non-facts and giving facts with hope. And it's said in a different way. Right. Like like you were saying, it's, it's said in a different way. Yeah. Well, it's, it was interesting as you were telling the story about the PDA, which is this, it's called a patent ductus arteriosus, yes. the blood vessel that's outside right. the heart that needs to close. And the younger the preemie is, the less likely it is to close on its own. Right. And so there was this big study that came out that showed that for most babies, if you take all comers, the only thing that changes if you ligate the PDA is that they have their PDA ligated, that it's not there. It doesn't change the number of days they're in the hospital, when they come off the ventilator. So, you know, there's this study that shows that for all babies, it really doesn't make a huge difference. And so we used to ligate a lot of PDAs. Yes. And the yes. pendulum swung to where we're ligating very, very few PDAs. Right. But we have debates in our group, like collegial debates, but nonetheless, it's discussion. 
because there is this certain percentage of babies, particularly your smallest and tiniest babies, that really do benefit from the PDA ligation. And so the question is, how do we as doctors try to figure out who those babies are that are going to benefit the most? Because like any surgery, there are risks to that surgery. And it's really common for babies to get worse after the PDA ligation before they get better because they stop peeing, the blood flow going to their lungs and through their body changes that makes them sicker. So it is this kind of risk benefit. So they do get a little bit worse before they get better. So how do we kind of hone in on which babies would benefit the most from it? And that's where the art of medicine comes in. You can't mm-hmm. just stand on the study and say, yeah. no baby benefits from a PDA ligation. Right. Because what the study says is that if you look at all babies, we don't need to be ligating all of these Everyone. babies. Right. But there still are some that really, really benefit. And how do we best find those babies? Which is where Faith fell into, right? Right. She fell into this category of, yeah, all babies don't benefit, but she might. might. And she followed the course that we would expect. She got worse after her ligation before she started to get better. Yeah. And, you know, she got got worse, but that a big part of it was because they took her off the ventilator nine days after surgery. And I was really hesitant about it. I was like, that doesn't, I don't feel good. But they were, she was doing so good that the doctor was like, this is our chance. This is the time now. And after that, when her lungs collapsed, that's when they're like, no, taking her off the ventilator. She is staying on this ventilator. She is going home on the ventilator. So that's what we expected. But they, they surprise you. And that heart surgery stopped the flooding of her lungs. And it gave her lungs a little bit of time to, to recuperate. And even though she had that lung collapse, it was a lot of because she had been on bubble CPAP and not on the ventilator pressure. And she was still just too young. Um, you know, they did try the, the endomethacin. They did try it twice. Isn't that what it's called? Endomethacin? Yep. Endomethacin. Uh, it's a drug like that, ibuprofen. yeah, ibuprofen, endomethacin, and Tylenol. All three yeah. of those are medicines that have been shown to help close the um, PDA, but it doesn't always work. Uh, sometimes exactly. it makes it small enough that we don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. Sometimes it makes no difference whatsoever. Um, but yeah, a, bl- a lot of places will try that first. I feel like I'm just really, uh, I, I just, I'm really blessed. I'm extremely blessed to have such an amazing little girl that has never given up. So she's never going to give up. I'm never going to give up. And every time she's in the hospital, I'm right there with her and I don't leave her side because. I can't like in the NICU, I only left for two days. And one day was because I went septic from a kidney infection. They wouldn't let me out of the hospital. I begged and begged and begged and begged and let, they finally let me out of the hospital. But I only missed two days out of the 140 days, which is why I became so in tune with her. Yeah. You know, it's so important. And when they feel your, your presence, you'll, you can feel it in their body. Uh, language when they feel your presence because she used to grab our fingers and hold on tight and I just sit there and let her hold my finger for as long as she wanted to when I went to like touch her because you know that one layer of skin sometimes it's painful for touch so when I went to like just barely touch her if she jumped or something I okay that's fine I'm not gonna touch you I just talked to her softly uh, I played I'll play piano and then I put it on the recorder and then I put it in her her bed with her and like I just you know, when the doctor said, you can do this, you can do this, you can do that. I'm like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. So it's a long road, but it's one well worth it. It's one well worth it. That's for sure. It's, it's rough, though. I mean, it was rough in the beginning, but having her has been like the greatest thing in my life. Yeah. I can't even explain it. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. What, anyway. what did I not ask you about that you were wanting to, to say? Some of the... Um, questions that I had sent you kind of answered as you were going through your story but is there anything else that you're just really wanting to tell people that I didn't ask about um, I wrote down notes um, it's like the, the advice that I wanted to say was like don't be afraid to, to ask for help um, and people that are trying to support others going through the NICU you need to 
be there as an ear. Don't give advice. Don't say, oh, it's going to be okay. Just be that ear. So when like I'm struggling through something, I can call you and I can say, I'm going through this and this. And you can say, I'm here for you. What do you need me to do? Um, setting up meal plans. Um, I wish someone had done that for us. And that was a huge struggle was like making kids dinner because dad would have to be at home and I'd be in the NICU. And he's the one who cooks. So that that was okay. But then he was at home instead of the NICU because... You know, he had to make dinner and be with the kids. So babysitting, offering babysitting if they already have children, offering to clean their house, offering to uh, set up a meal plan, starting a fundraising site. Like um, one of our good friends, I don't know if you, you probably don't know Sammy. It's Sam, there's this thing called Sammy Circuit, and it's a guy that goes to the schools and does um, um, workout classes with the kids at schools. Okay. He actually started a fundraiser for us in his church and he raised $3,000 for us. Oh, wow. But then my sister said, start a GoFundMe. We did that. And we raised like $10,000 and that's how I stayed out of my job. That's how I stayed in the NICU. I was not going to go back to my job and leave her. I was right. like, I don't care to lose our house. I'm staying here with her. So that, that support from others is so, it's so important. And I, I had support, but I wish people had set up meal plans and offered to babysit. And um, we did have some family that took care of the kids every once in a while, but they were in the NICU sitting in the waiting room, you know, for hours every single day. And that was hard. Um, I wanted to see what else I said. Oh, another thing was um, learn CPR before you come home. Take your CPR class before you come home because you just don't know when you'll need it. And I kept the picture of how to do CPR on the fridge just in case like, you know, I got anxiety when I needed to do it and I couldn't remember. So that's really, I thought that was really important before you go home, make sure you know exactly what you're going to be doing before you leave the house. Make sure you have exactly everything planned out. Uh, do I have enough of this? Always overpack. Don't underpack. Uh, do I have enough of this? Do I have enough of that? Do I have this? Uh, like I basically will pack for like I'm going to be gone for an entire day, even if I'm going to be gone for an hour because I don't know what will happen. And the doctor's appointments can run longer than typical, like that you expect. So I always had extra supplies of oxygen in the car. I always had extra leads. I always had extra um, strips for the, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember what they're called, for the monitor. I always had the monitor charger. I carried all this stuff with me, but you know, it was beneficial to to me to know that I was prepared in any case no awesome. but I think that's really fantastic advice when you have a baby that goes home who has some type of special equipment whether that's yeah. a g-tube or the tubing right. or the leads or the monitor or a baby that has a trach and a vent exactly um, or even for us my twins ended up on a special formula and yeah we were traveling and um, the car broke down and then our flight was delayed and then the electricity at the airport went out. And so he, I had these two four month old twins who could only have special formula because of allergy and bloody stool and everything. And I had packed the entire tub of formula into the diaper bag just in case. And yep. I have never been so grateful because we would have run right. out of food for them with, exactly. I, I couldn't just give them milk. I couldn't, give them yep. whatever I had to give them this special stuff so even even with that just always overpack always be a little bit more prepared especially when you have critical supplies that you exactly. like you it's critical that you have the oxygen it's critical that you have the trach it's critical that your baby needs to be fed through the g-tube so make sure you have extra of all of that you learn so much from the NICU that you take with you um for the rest of your life and like, you know, now I, I wish that I could become a, like a neonatologist or something because of what I've seen and what I've been through. Uh, I was supposed to start becoming uh, a NICU mom where I go through the NICU and I talk to parents and tell them a face story and stuff. But she got really sick when we were supposed to start that. And so I didn't get to do it. But I'm hoping uh, eventually I will get to to do that because that's what I like. I like doing that. I like being able to support others and help them get through it and encourage them and teach them, you know, to follow their instincts. And that's why we have those mommy instincts is for our, you know, when we have a child, we have those mommy instincts to be able to see what they need. You know, the cries, the, all those signals, 
even a newborn, healthy newborn, same thing, yeah. you know? Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. It was really yeah. fun to talk to you and to hear about Faith and how she's doing. And huge congratulations on the kindergarten graduation that happened this week. That's just awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm thankful for doing it. I'm thankful for being able to do this because I, I've been wanting to spread like the word on, you know, on micro preemies and ha- give other parents the hope and, um, that strength maybe they need someone else's encouragement to keep going or keep fighting and you know her hand her her hand was the size of a penny her head fit in the palm of my hand and like this and people were like there's no way there's no way there's no way but i mean look where she is now she's six so if i can help other parents in any way possible then I'll, i'll be doing it because i I don't want parents to feel like they're alone when they have to go through it. And I want them to be able to have stories of hope and positivity and not just the negativity. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.